Thank you for joining us for Beyond Allyship, the new series from Green Card Voices. I'm your host, Mahalet Astyanaki. I'm an Ethiopian-American living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was born in Ethiopia and have lived in nine countries spanning across four continents before moving to the United States in 2010. And I'm Asha Tanki, Green Card Voices podcast manager. This week, we're speaking with campaign managers from 18 Million Rising and Empower Change about the progress we've made and the paths forward from here. Laura Lee joined 18 Million Rising in 2017 as a campaigner and now serves as campaign manager. She is an organizer, digital campaigner, and strategist who has been organizing Asian Americans for 10 years. Most recently, she was a campaign consultant for the Protest Fund on criminalization issues affecting Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians, and supported the launch and organizing of the No Muslim Ban Ever campaign. She also organizes with Asian Pacific Islander Resistance based in Washington, DC. Laura holds a BA in politics from Oberlin College and is a Fulbright recipient where she was based in Curitiba, Brazil. Kifa Shaw is a campaign manager at Empower Change. Her work spans across multiple industries and geographies. She has worked for the Asian Law Caucus, Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice, and Unite Here Local 11. Kifa worked abroad in Europe and Pakistan on issues of health, education, and economic empowerment. She is a TED resident and on the board of trustees for the Sabaka for Peace Foundation. Kifa has a master's in public administration for economic policy from the London School of Economics and a Bachelor of Arts in Ethnic Studies from UC Berkeley. So if you can both start by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, this can include your organizing role, but um, also what you do outside um, work. Um, how did you find yourself in the space you're currently in? Um, hello, I'm Laura. Um, I am the guardian of my dog, Lilo. I'm a budding ceramicist. I'm a goer to therapy. Um, I'm a taiko drummer hobbyist, and I'm also a community organizer and digital campaigner. Um, I'm also the daughter of Chinese restaurant workers who, after many decades, finally have their own business after working in other people's kitchens. And my family immigrated here through family reunification in the 80s um, because my mom wanted my sister and I to go to school. So I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And everything that I am um, was sparked by my mom, who made a really risky and brave choice um, that set both of our lives to be really different than what we had ever expected. And uh, I saw how difficult and violent her world has been um, as like a woman of color, an immigrant, someone who's limited English speaking, uneducated. And so from a young age, I knew that the world should be different, like more fair, more just, where we can all thrive. So I've always wanted to serve people and be a public servant. And I tried a lot of different roles until I landed 18 Million Rising. And now I'm a campaign manager there. Um, and for those of y'all who don't know, 18 Million Rising is a national digital first and member-based Asian American organizing hub. So that's my spiel and I'll let Kifa take it away. I love your spiel. Hey everyone, um, my name is Kifa. I am really happy to be here first. I just wanna name that I love Laura so much. I found her through my work and she has become 
uh, a movement friend and it's really important to have friends in the movement. I consider myself a creative because I think that organizers are reimagining the world and that's a creative process. So I am based out of Washington Heights. I live in New York City. I enjoy um, spending my days working out with my neighbors in the park right now as safely as possible during COVID-19. I am learning to cook more South Asian recipes while we're quarantining. And I'm a, a daughter of immigrants. I consider myself an immigrant because I moved here when I was very young. I'm a woman of color, a Muslim, and I am an organizer. I work at Empower Change, which is a digital first platform that centers Muslim voices on issues around race and justice, social justice and um, just questions that are really important for uh, Muslim folks to uplift digitally. So that's my intro. <laughs> well, thank you both. Um, um, so now just if you can talk to me about your communities, um, where do you find home? Home for me is a really um, fluid concept because it, of course, has to do with being around family, chosen family, loved ones. And it also is a fluid concept because I am an immigrant and I feel very attached to um, where I was born and where my parents grew up. And I also lived in Karachi and worked in Karachi for in, in my adult life for a couple of years. So home feels like all the places that I've lived and all the places that I've formed community in, all the places that I know that folks are in now that were loved ones to me. So home is a, a very fluid concept and I think it's um, always revolving around community. I just want to say I love that you said that because I get asked that question quite a bit and it's it's a hard question to answer, um, especially because um, a little bit about myself. I'm originally from Ethiopia, but I have moved around and um, it's really hard to call one place home. So I, I tend to say I'm international. Um, yeah, that really resonates with me too. I think home is like where your chosen family and community are. And I say chosen family because... Um, just because you're like related to people biologically, that doesn't mean that th that's where you feel at home. Um, I actually felt really lonely growing up uh, because of that. And there also weren't like a lot of people, like Asian Americans in particular, where I was growing. I felt really isolated. I know my family felt really isolated from them. Um, so when I like was coming into like my own political awakening, um, I was like searching for people who held like the same values as me, who like were interested in, you know, at the time what I considered organizing, which is like tabling and like asking people to like buy lollipops for a dollar for like a fundraiser or like whatever. Um, and then as I got older um, and I went away to school and um, I actually got involved with the Asian American community, I like my idea of home began to like evolve further and further. And now I like, I definitely see like 18 million rising as like a political home where like nationally Asian Americans are like in community together. And then locally, um, I was really glad to have found Asian Pacific Islander resistance here in the DC area. 
Um, and that's what I consider like my local political home or community home. Specifically looking at your organizing, was there a particular moment that gears switched for you and your relationship with organizing? A moment you decided to become more involved? So I found what you might consider like Asian American organizing when I went away to school, school being college at Oberlin. Um, and I was 18 and I had just gotten an internship with this organization called National Capacity. And they work on like housing and economic justice for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I just wanna make that distinction because we're not the same necessarily. And um, I got to meet a ton of different people. Like I got to meet organizers, I got to meet like policymakers, politicians, um, like local electeds, um, and just like regular people who were fighting to keep elders in their homes. Like I met Native Hawaiians who were creating land trusts. I met like community members getting historic landmark status for their neighborhoods to keep gentrifiers out. And this is like the first time I'd ever seen people who looked like me came from backgrounds like me doing this kind of work. So it just changed my whole worldview. Um, and actually I remember having a conversation with um, my manager at the time at my internship being like, uh, I was like, you know, wrapped up in this um, respectability politic and like model minority myth. And, you know, coming from a family that's very working class, I was just like, oh my God, I have to like support my family and like make a ton of money and maybe get a corporate job. And then I remember talking to my manager, Melvin, um, who's from Guam in the Philippines. And he was just like really patient with me about talking about community and movement and like, what does it mean to like um, dedicate your life to something that's beyond just like material resources or wealth and at 18 I was just like I don't know what you're talking about like I need money um but that was like the beginning of that conversation and it like it like really opened my eyes to a lot of things I love this question um because I love to hear about how people come to organizing it's kind of like a quote-unquote coming of age story but to me it's like coming to organizing story it's way better for me, it's actually kind of intertwined coming of age and coming to organizing. Um, I mean, my trajectory is kind of uh, completely shaped by my dad. Um, I was, I grew up very politicized from a very young age. I learned a lot of the things that I still hold very closely. Laura's saying to tell the Malcolm X story, which is hilarious. <laughs> I could tell so many stories. But one story I will tell is... Um, this is this the, the interesting thing for me about my organizing is that right now I work at a uh, an organization that centers um, Muslim voices and is led by Muslims, um, which is very important to me. But my organizing wasn't always rooted in identity. My organizing has always been about rooted in principles and values that I think um, you know that I hold as sacred to me as much as like anything that to do with religion. So. I think of organizing as, you know, part of, part and parcel of like my faith and my, and my spirituality and my practice. But I also think of organizing as something sacred and its own kind of faith and, <laughs> and moral compass and code. So um, I just want to note that my organizing hasn't always been only around Muslim communities and, and that's really uh, not actually where it began. My dad, um, from a very young age, politicized me to know about struggles all around the world. And to be, like you mentioned, Mahalat, like really internationalist in perspective. 
and, and to always hold uh, communities around the world in, in my mind. And so um, I remember when I was 14, I, I was a freshman in college, and, I mean, sorry, a freshman in high school. And, you know, there, were, there was a lot of conversation coming um, up in my classes around the occupation or the war in Iraq. And I was sitting in my world history class and my teacher sort of, you know, offhandedly just said, one US soldier's life isn't worth this, an entire city in Iraq. So the life of one US soldier is more worthy than an entire city in Iraq. And I was so struck by that comment and I was so hurt by that comment. And I was one uh, of maybe two or three Muslims at my high school. And I remember feeling um, really responsible for that comment as well, right? Like I wanted to react to it and I wanted to also um, address the pain that I felt that my teacher caused by saying what he did. So that evening I went home, I went to Chomsky.info, which was our homepage on our family computer. I typed in war in Iraq and I wrote down on blue post-it notes, like all these uh, points to, to say to my teacher that there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, Iraqis had nothing to do with 9-11. Uh, this is a war, uh, an imperial war for oil and resources. And I went in the next day and I'm 14. And I said to my teacher, and you know, when they say there's a cheat, like there's a quote, even if your voice shakes, like, you know, speak, even if your voice shakes, that's literally what happened. And I, and I raised my hands and my, my Southern teacher, Mr. Frost, you know, I was like, you know, um, Mr. Frost, he goes, yes, Kifa May. And I was like, I have something that I'd like to address that you said yesterday. And he was like, go ahead. <laughs> he was Southern, but we were in Southern California. So I'd, he was from Georgia. But anyways, long story short, I basically spoke out and I never stopped speaking out since. I remember my classmates looking at me sort of um, half, you know, amused, maybe half curiously. Like they were just it was a very weird situation because I was clearly on the brink of crying, but I was still talking about this imperial war in Iraq. And I told him how I was hurt and I told him how he was wrong. And I said that you are actually incorrect about all of the things that you have been teaching us. And one city in Iraq is worth the life of, um, you know, not just one hum like U.S. soldier, but all, all human beings have worth. And so since then, I just never stopped. Wow, I'm so glad, Laura, that you brought up that story so that, Kiffa, you could share that with us. That is, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. I think it's like that idea of also the way that when we grow up, a lot of, I'm thinking about a lot of ways I grew up in St. Louis and thinking about a, the, a lot of ways in which, you know, the education that we have, especially when, you know, our identities are minorities in many ways and the places that we occupy, especially when we're minors, um, the way that, you know, a lot of that education, it can go two ways, right? It can like prompt us to speak up or it can also get embedded in a way that is later internalized. And all of these questions are things that I think huge portions of this diaspora are like reckoning with. I was going to say um, that that was not the story that I had requested from Kippa, actually. And that there was a really great story also involving 
a teacher in Palm Springs while Kiffa was living there. Um, and she also owns them. So I think Kiffa, if you can find a, an opportunity later in this podcast to share that story, you totally should. Should I share it now? I feel like everyone is waiting. I really think you should share it. It is I hilarious. Think so too. I said I'm not that. trying to hype it up too much, but it's pretty funny. Okay. It was in the year that you take a, a push, AP US history. I was probably a sophomore or junior. I was a junior in high school and our teacher had told, the assignment was that you take those tiles that hang on the, the roof of your classroom uh, you get you take it home and you get to decorate it with a historical figure and uplift a historical moment and then you present on it and then it'll be displayed year long as art in your classroom and I knew immediately that I was going to do it on Malcolm X and I wanted to talk about you know not just uh, Malcolm but just the Black Liberation movements. Um, the civil rights movements, and just speak to this history that wasn't being told in our AP US history class. And I just wanted to highlight, um, you know, somebody that I hold as a, a figure that I look up to and somebody that I really um, look to for guidance in their uh, organizing principles and practices. And I also wanted to just make sure to become correct about history in my history class. And so I presented, and I remember that the picture that I chose to illustrate was Malcolm at the window with, um, with a shotgun. And it was because it was also, you know, a moment that really speaks to the idea of by any means necessary, that what, does dri what drives people to, to say that and to claim that, right, as a narrative, that we, like, and I'm not black, so I don't know this, so I can't speak for it. But the idea of like, you know, we know struggles around the world where people are pushed to conditions that push them not only to organize, but to say by any means we will fight for our liberation. And to me, that always made sense. Um, and so I wanted to uplift that in the class and I presented on it and my teacher was concerned and she then took my tile and I remember she kind of hid it away and everyone else's tiles went up on the roof of the classroom and you could see them. And then I asked, you know, I, I noticed that my tile is not up yet. Is there a reason or why isn't my tile up yet? And my teacher said that first she feigned, you know, not knowing. She was like, oh, is it really not up? <laughs> My tile was not up. Can you please put my tile up? My friend had actually helped me illustrate this tile. I'm not like a great drawer. I was like, this is a lot of labor. Can you please display it? And it's also important. And so she, you know, eventually just didn't do it because it made her feel uncomfortable. And also because I think, you know, again, like you're just suppressing a part of history. And it's because like you mentioned, Asha, like you're suppressing history constantly through the teachings that you have. In, in most high schools. And then even if young people try to amplify it in their classrooms, at least back then, um, I felt a, a lot of suppression of the real history of this country. And that is the Mal one of the Malcolm X stories. I don't know if that's the one you wanted, Laura, because there's others. Okay. 
I think what I found amusing about that story was that there is this like teacher who has so much more power over you, like right as a student, as a young student. And she was so insecure that she like didn't put up your tile. And so it's like, I, I, I find that amusing because I'm like, that is literally what is also happening now. Like the people in power are so scared and insecure that they're willing to like suppress this so that, you know, like we are unable to actually express like what is the truth. I found that amusing. But in retrospect, I didn't, I didn't realize the end of the story was that she still didn't put it up. That's fucked up. She didn't put it up and it is. And I also remember, um, I, I will say at the end, when I took that tile home, because it got sent home with me eventually, not only did it not get displayed, it just got sent home with me. When I took that tile home, I took it on my way home. I stopped by my friend's house who had helped me illustrate it. He was an artist, right? And I remember his dad deliberately asking me, do you really believe that by any means necessary? And I looked at him and I remember these are the same people who would introduce me to other people at dinners as this is a good Muslim girl. And I remember I said to him when he asked me, I was like, yes, I mean that. And it was, it was another time in my life confronting a white man who's scared of me and saying, you should be scared. Wow. 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 I think like, I'm, I'm again, so glad you shared the story. And I'm also thinking just of how, I mean, I, I know that maybe there's a world where there are high schoolers who are speaking up to their teachers. And I just don't tend to believe that for many places that is at all true. Um, and like thinking to this current context that we're in the last, you know, the last few months that we've been in, especially this time since the police murder of George Floyd, um, I think there's been just another round of, of reckoning uh, in, in our society. And there's always this question of whether or not, you know, if we're jumping from political moment to political moment, whether that is sustained. And I know both of you as, as organizers and as campaign managers know that it's a lot more than moment to moment, that there's so much that is constantly happening in the day-to-day -day in between. I'm curious about both of your thoughts on, you know, how this has become uh, another quote-unquote reckoning for non-Black folks of color on their relationship to white supremacist systems, to white supremacist institutions, um, and whether you think that, you know, the folks who are not organizers, the folks who are possibly viewing this moment to moment or only when, you know, it comes and grabs them by the shoulders and says, this is now your life also, folks who are non-Black, um, folks who are non-Black POC. I'm curious about your thoughts on whether or not this moment will be catalyzed or if you think it's different from other such reckonings in the past. I think that each moment builds on each other. So we're just like more used to organizing though now. Um, and I, I guess I'll speak not on behalf, but like my observations of like Asian Americans in particular, because those are the folks that I organize. Um, and I think that like all the blatant assaults on our communities by like the Trump administration, different state governments, police departments have made people go like, we've had enough. And there's been like really amazing organizing that have mobilized people who have otherwise wouldn't have been on the streets. And I'm thinking about not just this moment, but like a lot of moments that have led up to this in the last few years. So I'm thinking, and if I can speak more to this, and we worked on this campaign together, but I think about like Yemeni bodega owners who like went on strike when the Muslim ban happened. I think about like Asian grandparents and like Latinx and black neighbors who are now organizing to save their homes everywhere from like Philadelphia to Los Angeles to San Francisco. And 
I also am thinking about like how neighbors leapt into action and provided like community care to each other when the pandemic hit. And so these are all ways in which maybe at on the surface don't look as though they're related or correlated, but they in fact are like we're becoming more familiar with new ways of being like what Kifa mentioned, like as organizers, we have to be creative. We're imagining new ways and I'm seeing that and um, I'll also say that, you know, these current uprisings are like the largest, are said to be the largest social movement in US history. So we're seeing like non-black people participating in protests and actions, having conversations on anti-blackness. Um, and there are significant wins, like we're seeing police-free schools, like a lot of votes by school boards to end police contracts. We're seeing like racist Confederate statues being torn down. And like abolition is now a word that is being talked about in the media. And people are actually talking about defunding the police and moving money towards social and community services. Like there's a lot of momentum that I don't think we've seen before in such a concentrated time. And I think it's because people are just like, are really fed up and they're like, you know what, the system has to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Laura, you know, hit the nail on the head. And I think for uh, non-Black POC, I will say one thing that Laura mentioned earlier in terms of respectability politics, non-Black POC are very aspirational, especially if they're, um, if they buy into the mythology around, you know, model minority myths or whatever it might be. Uh, but the ascendancy towards whiteness amongst non-Black POC is very common. And I think that one thing that happened um, lately um, after abolition, became something that people talk more, you know, commonly about. Uh, people, like non-Black POC, at least in my circles or my extended circles, uh, started to talk about these issues without the respectability factors in it, right? Like they, it was like a moment that allowed themselves to, to finally push past um, whatever ascendancy towards whiteness that they might be aspiring towards and, and just, you know, for one second, uh, push that aside and and even sort of unlearn it within themselves and talk about it that to me is a shift in terms of like the culture amongst non-black poc in terms of the politicization process amongst non-black poc um that was really important and i don't i don't think that that is um insignificant but i think that that should be and i think we'll get into this later but that should be something that is sustained in an institutional way. There should be like a lot of support for those folks who become politicized in a moment like this so that they understand that yes, so much work has been happening around this. Yes, black folks have already been working on this and already been talking about this, already explained all of this. So welcome. And that's something that Laura and I have been saying a lot lately. It's like, welcome. And now let's do the work. Yeah, so important to have folks recognizing that body of work and to make sure that, that, that those foundations are maintained, right? Like to not build up a parallel structure with far less education and far less institutional knowledge just because, oh, I woke up today and now I, now I am politicized this way. But to, yeah, really invest in the organizations that have been doing that work, you know, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm like time in memoriam, you know. So um, what are the immediate challenges you see ahead? Oh, uh, I mean, we're living through a global pandemic and we're likely about to go into a really severe economic downturn. So I think 
this is my this is this what I'm about to say is like my question for all of these time periods, which is like, how are we going to get people to dream of new worlds where they don't have to like work themselves into exhaustion to survive? And then also, how are we going to get them to continue to pay attention to the atrocities that are being committed by the state on its people when people are like being forced back to work in unsafe conditions? These are connected. The government is dividing us along racial and class lines during this historic, these historic uprisings because they're refusing to provide like basic human needs during a global pandemic. This is, you know, important for Asian Americans because, you know, essential workers tend to be poor immigrant and also Asian. Um, but, you know, we're, I think this is true for everybody, right? And I also think long-term, I was, think, I was reflecting on Kifa saying like, we're telling people like, welcome. And also like, please be patient because I've seen like a lot of takedowns and cancel culture and then also divisive hot takes on the internet by people who are coming to their political awakening in this moment. Um, and I'm really worried about like divisiveness because that plays into like white supremacy. And I'm thinking about um, how do I, and also we as like an Asian American movement create the sense of community um, and political homes so that people feel connected um, because ultimately, you know, this is a marathon and not a sprint. So we need to do a lot of long-term relationship building so people feel like, you know, they can like, if they need to rest, take time away and then come back and like know that people have their back. So yeah, those are a few of the things that I've been thinking about. And I completely agree. I think this kind of um, is, can apply to all. Um, but Kifa, uh, do you, can you elaborate a little bit more on this, um, specifically on uh, Muslim organizing spaces? I think for Muslim communities, there's a lot of work to be done around, so when we're talking about a reckoning in terms of uh, around the country, I think within Muslim communities, there needs to be a reckoning around um, Islam in America, where Immigrant Muslims oftentimes think of their experiences as the Muslim American experience. Um, we talk a lot about how Muslims are not a monolith, but oftentimes Muslims in America, especially if they're immigrant, non-Black POCs, they tend to situate themselves as the Muslim American community and the Muslim American voice, uh, which is just a complete you know, act of invisibilizing not only, you know, nearly 30% of the Muslim population in America, which is Black, but also the history of Islam in America, which has been Black. For me, the, Muslim, the reckoning within the Muslim community has to be about history of uh, Black folks in America and also what that means for uh, Islam in America, because it's completely intertwined. And so the long-term work has to, again, for me, it's really important, the long-term work has to be about political education within our communities in a consistent way, in an institutional way, one that's deeply rooted in a more radical understanding of ourselves and not facing towards what, you know, purported rights are granted to us in the constitution because the constitution wasn't about any of us. So for me, it's like, that is what needs to happen in the midterm, in the long-term and forevermore is a pipeline of people who are deeply rooted in that type of a consciousness. 
and where, like you're saying, it's not a temporary moment of reckoning, but something that's deeply ingrained into the consciousness of our communities overall. Thank you. Um, so there are many different levels of organizing around identities happening among Asian Americans. Some are geographic, um, like regional, South Asian, East Asian, uh, or much more local, like Punjabi for Black Lives, while many others are at the intersection of race, culture, and uh, labor, like drum, um, or race, culture, and religion, example being Empowered Change. Um, Laura, can you touch um, on the history of political identity of Asian American and its relationship to the fight of Black liberation? I'm not an ethnic studies professor, but I'm going to try to be right now. <laughs> Slash, you know, you don't need to have a PhD to be to teach. So to be Asian American um, means to be political. And I say that because um, Yuji Ichioka and Emma G of the Asian American Political Alliance coined the term Asian American in 1968. And Asian Americans came together to organize under that shared identity during the Third World Liberation Front strikes. And the 1969 Third World Liberation Front was a student movement to establish ethnic studies. And the strikes happened at SF State and UC Berkeley. But what is left out of the narrative of the Third World Liberation Front is that we also owe credit to Black liberation efforts for the term Asian American, and the Black power movement was a catalyst in forming the Third World Liberation Front, and the strike was even modeled after the organizing efforts of the Black Panther Party. It was really exciting for me because I knew that, but I got to hear it again uh, when I interviewed Harvey Dong, who was a student during the Third World Liberation Front and is now a lecturer at UC Berkeley for our um, our 18MR newsletter um, in May, which was during APA Heritage Month, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And um, to bring it back to like present day, I think there is like power in organizing under this term, even though folks are like, you know, what does it mean to be Pan-Asian? You know, um, a lot of folks would prefer to organize under being like South Asian, for, for example, or under their specific ethnicity. Um, but I think people forget or never got to learn like our shared history. And as diverse as we are being Asian American, which is a term that you know was only coined in 68, we're really alike because of how we're racialized in the US. And I think about like the Chinese Exclusion Act was basically a ban on immigration from parts of China. And it wasn't until the Immigration Nationality Act in 65 that finally like like abolished quotas and like allowed people from Asia and the Pacific to immigrate here. So if we think about that, like we've been lumped all together regardless. And now with COVID happening this year, what we saw happen to Asian Americans, regardless of their ethnicity, it meant that like we were victimized and subjected to anti-Asian violence because Trump, other government officials blame China for spreading the disease. So again, we're getting lumped together because we're seen as the perpetual foreigner, the disease carrier, enemy of the state. Um, and I won't keep going into this because this is a whole ass lecture, but um, 18 Million Rising published a zine called Unmasking Yellow Peril um, in partnership with the University of Connecticut in April at the start of the pandemic. So if people are interested in learning more about that, you can download it from our website. Sorry, just a quick plug, quick 
sponsorship plug. I was an ethnic studies major at UC Berkeley and I was in the Third World Liberation Front and Laura sounds exactly like a professor of ethnic studies. So I think Laura did an excellent job dropping knowledge about all of that on us. I completely agree. And then Laura, I'm just gonna um, continue with that question. Um, do you see it continuing to be a uniquely useful political identity in 2020? Yeah, I do. Um, I know that there have been a lot of conversations around and critiques actually around using the word Asian American in particular as it relates to like for black lives. Like I've seen a lot of takes around that. And what I'll say is, is that it's really important to, to see who is saying that. When did they enter organizing in this movement and this moment? Are they black? You know, are black folks the ones saying that? Um, if so, that's one thing. It's another to um, be Asian American and then critique someone who's saying that because it's not just a phrase, right, to be Asian American, um, or and it's also not a phrase to say, just a phrase to say Asian American Asian Americans for Black Lives because there's actually an organizing group in the Bay Area called. Asians for Black Lives, and they've been doing a lot of amazing work um, around like de-escalation, around abolition, around having difficult conversations with Asian American communities in the Bay Area about anti-Blackness. Um, and so, yeah, I think, again, I will, I will reiterate, it's really important to know your history um, and also to be aware of like who you are and what you're bringing to the space because a lot of folks who are saying like let's not center ourselves in this moment have not been doing this work and do not see like the importance therefore of like knowing who you are and like your history and like how you're showing up i think if i also have a lot to say about this i was just thinking sorry oh i was just thinking that what you said with the caveat, I really appreciated because, you know, it's, it's like blank space for black lives um, could work it, with all of the caveats that you mentioned, Laura. But one thing that I saw that really didn't work for me, and I don't know how other folks feel about it, but, m you know, my friends and I had conversations around this, Muslims for black lives. That doesn't work because black folks are Muslim. A lot of, again, a, a great proportion of our communities in the U.S. that are Muslim are Black. To me, that was completely illogical and also, again, decentered any understanding of history and our own history as Muslim folks in this country. And I know that one thing that um, was raised as a question is the sort of historical intersection of Muslim identities um, and the fight for, for Black liberation. And so one thing um, that I wanted to mention is recently I've been reading about um, the movements within prisons um, that really were in, not just, uh, in, you know, completely led by, but um, formed by uh, Black Muslims. So in the, and I am not a, a beautiful, nuanced historian professor like Laura, so I'm just going to give you all the uh, general uh, highlights here, but there's a book by uh, Garrett Felber 
called Those Who Know Don't Say. And this is the book that I am going to uplift some information from. So if you are interested in this information, I really encourage you to read this book. I work on a lot of anti-surveillance um, campaigns and there is obviously a surveillance apparatus that functions against Muslims post 9-11, but even pre 9-11. But much of that obviously is because of the black power movement, the black liberation struggle in this country, even before um, the 60s, there were surveillance techniques that existed within the state to monitor, surveil, and capture black folks in this country who have been resisting state oppression. So for me, I wanted to know, you know, anecdotally, we've heard so much about the surveillance state and how it was created. We know COINTELPRO was created to dismantle, uh, you know, the black liberation struggle. We know that um, the FBI has targeted organizers in this country, but this book really does highlight the ways that the Nation of Islam and its members were organizing within prisons. And this is so salient today because uh, prisoners back then who were Muslim, who were Black, um, were the ones who were leading the abolition movement from within. So they were using courtrooms as political theater. They were using uh, solitary confinement as um, uh, a content, a point of contention. They were the ones who were forming the conversations around, you know, abolition and they were Muslim and they were black. And so to me, it's so important to know that um, the surveillance techniques that are being used today, whether it's in prisons or in mosques, were a lot of them were formed based on the ways that black Muslims were being surveilled in those prisons. A lot of the ways that prison um, abolition is discussed today is because of members of the Nation of Islam who were imprisoned. Obviously, it's not only them, but to me as a Muslim in America, it's really important to uplift those um, struggles and to, to uplift that organizing because it was excellent organizing and it worked and it was concerted and it was deliberate. And that is something that we should always um, recall when we think about what does it mean to be a Muslim and consider myself an abolitionist? What does it mean to ever say something so ridiculous as Muslims for Black Lives? And why doesn't that make sense? So, you know, that's what I think. <laughs> I like it. I, um, I completely agree. No, you're right. Like it's, uh, and this is why we want to do this podcast because we want to educate. We want to, um, you know, get different perspectives because you're absolutely right. In the U.S., um, like a, a majority, like those Muslims are black and like, you know, so to say that it's like, you know, so I'm, I'm glad you, um, elaborated on that and mentioned that. So thank you for that. Um, so looking forward, um, what are next steps that folks can get activated around? Um, this can be like specific communities or as a whole, um, anything from, uh, it could be anything from specific rallies to planning or legislations. Are, do you guys have any ideas of what folks can do um, to get activated? Something that folks can do that I encourage is, I know that there are a lot of people who have probably been looking at the posts on Instagram, like read these books and watch these films, which are super helpful. 
Um, I also think what something Laura and I constantly tell people is if you are interested in beginning to organize, look around you first. See if there is an organization that exists in your community, in um, you know any place around you, you within your identities, if that's what you're interested in organizing from, if that's your point of departure. Just look around first. If there is something that exists and there's space for you, join it um, and begin to work and, and you know contribute to the labor that has been happening and that is being done. If you're interested in learning more, Laura, myself, and uh, our comrade Bianca, we are doing a series of trainings and we have been doing um, these organizing trainings that we call organizing from where you're at. And it's part of something like a radical summer school series that we're going to be starting in a couple of weeks. If you're interested in that, we would love for you to sign up. And this will be, um, again, like a curriculum that's driven towards uh, helping people learn how to uh, think through organizing, what are um, strategies, tactics, and uh, frames that we use as organizers. And if that's something that, you know, floats your boat, then we'll, we'll ask <laughs> to be plugged. Link, link in bio. No, I'm just kidding. So um, are there any, are there moments that um, are coming up that make you feel cautious or um, moments in the past week or weeks that have made you feel that way? Um, do you, either of you have concerns about momentum maintaining or digital um, vocal allies slowing down on like financial contribution or anything else? Do you feel like the momentum is um, slowing down or do you see it still moving forward? I don't think it's slowing down. And I think actually that the escalation of authoritarian violence in Portland and then supposedly Chicago is in, is in correlation with how the government and the powers that be feel threatened by the organizing that's happened, that's been happening. So we're seeing like protesters being kidnapped by federal agents or secret police um, in violation of our constitutional rights. Trump is now threatening to deploy these agents in other cities that are being led by Democrats um, or liberals. And, you know, my, my thought is like, what's next? Because 2020 has been a trash year. And every like two to three months, we have something catastrophic or momentous happening. So I don't, I don't think it's going to slow down. I just think it's going to look really different. And I think myself as an organizer who uses the internet, I consider myself a digital organizer. I'm thinking about like, how am I going to continue to use the internet to educate and move people? And I'm really paying attention to how these crackdowns on dissent will impact our movements online and in the streets. And I'm also thinking about like, there are a number of organizations and power change included um, that are working on like surveillance, like not working on surveillance, but trying to end surveillance and criminalization of um, organizers. And one of the campaigns um, that we're working on that I think folks might be interested in is one where we're urging like Silicon Valley in particular to cut ties with police and end surveillance so that the tech is not being used for injustice. And that's in collaboration with Movement for Black Lives, BYP 100, 
Media Justice, Empowered Change, and Kairos. And you can learn more about that at techisnotneutral.com. I was just going to say, yes, tech isn't neutral. <laughs> I just, I, I agree with Laura that the work is not slowing down. I think, you know, if there's not chatter about it or if there's not um, as much on Instagram or on social media about it, I just really think it's so important for folks to know that the work is continuously happening, whether it was being publicized or not. Um, and it continues to happen. Uh, what I really hope for is that, you know, the conversation and the sort of the momentum that was occurring um, amongst like, quote unquote, like the dominant narrative just helps to like contribute to the movement in, in a way where there's like, hopefully, again, welcoming new people, uh, increasing political education, and just carrying on the work that has always been happening. And so I don't think that, you know, the work will never die down because folks are doing it and it will keep on happening. It's just about um, whether or not we're listening and we're actually tuning into it. And also I'll say that it may not be like, we're, we may see a slowdown on social media because people are not posting because protesters are being kidnapped. <laughs> and so that's another reason why. Um, and I think that the media is not connecting those two things, right? And also like who owns the media, right? Like corporations whose vested interests are to keep the status quo. So people have to be like constantly thinking about like, who, where am I getting this information from? Like who is telling me this? And like, where are they making profit? Because if you just take things at face value right now, um, you're going to be misled about what is happening as well. Uh, so as both of you know, we're hoping to investigate the ways in which different immigrant communities can um, be better co-conspirators, kind of lifting that term as well from 18 million risings, um, use of, you know, what it means to go beyond allyship, what it means to go to stand in a solidarity that also indicts our own selves in that allyship. Um, there were a lot of big moments, um, specifically thinking about Minneapolis, where Mahala and I are both based. Um, there were a lot of big moments where we were thinking about, you know, the ways in which different immigrant communities um, became forces for mutual aid. Um, and then there are also, you know, conversations that we've had with folks that remind us that our communities also um, suffer from a growing right. So whether that is, you know, a um, for some folks, you know, a, a more nefarious like Asian American right, um, I, I think really specifically about the role of Hindu fascism across the U.S. in um, turning folks against movements that are progressive. Um, the amount of money that these institutions have is, I think, a really important factor and, and something that 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 I think a lot of folks in immigrant communities who might be listening are are torn between possibly right hearing words from the right and hearing the movement towards liberation. Um, what are your go-to thoughts on the complicating factors of of folks becoming allies or trying to do more work? When it comes to the term ally, I don't think it's a, it's as strong a word as a co-conspirator, and I I say that because when you're a co-conspirator, it means that you are in the fight together, you're on the same level and you have just as much to gain and to lose as the other folk around you. And when you're an ally, it seems to me that you perhaps can like 
take time out of your day to set time aside to do an action, but then you return back to your life afterwards. Um, and that you are not like constantly learning, trying to better yourself and think about how you can serve. That's the difference that I see between being an ally and a co-conspirator. We could go really deep into framing um, because that's, that's what's happening with the rise of the Asian American right, um, is that they're winning this like messaging argument um, and on, on some fronts, but I'll, I'll share a campaign that ATNMR has been working on that I think um, pushes back a lot on this. Um, so when the call went out in June um, by black organizers for folks to step up at the moment, the staff thought about what are some tangible ways, actions that our members and also Asian Americans can take right now. And Kiffa and I have, I think we've always been taught as organizers that things should be framed as like one problem, one solution and one ask. So we launched a pledge and the pledge began with this phrase that like, Asian Americans for Black Lives in Action means that we stop calling the cops. And then for folks who signed, they were pledging to then have a conversation with their loved ones about not calling the cops. Um, and we, we framed it around not calling the cops because the term abolition means very little. I think to a lot of folks who are being introduced to this topic for the first time, you really need to know your audience, right? And so this was like one thing that folks can do that will like save black lives. Um, and so far we've like translated the letter into eight different languages, over 32 translators have helped so far. And I think that's a testament to like how resonant this is for folks. Um, I think there have been comparisons about like the letters for black lives and also like our calling me not the cops campaign. Um, and I would say they just build upon each other, right? Like we're all kind of working together to put out this like larger message that we need to show up um, and be co-conspirators because we can all take concrete actions to like change how we're showing up right now. Yeah, I think that's one thing. And then I'll just share like the conversation that I had with my mom about this. But as I mentioned before, like my parents um, have been like working class and I think they've, they've kind of shifted classes now that they own their own small business. Um, but I would still say like it's still very difficult and the clientele that they have, like sometimes they have a really tense relationship with them. Um, and, you know, my parents are also shaped by their own experiences in the United States, which are far different than mine, you know, um, being not as educated, not speaking English fluently, right? Um, so when I had this conversation with my mom, I was pretty nervous about it because for one thing, we have a language barrier. Um, I don't speak Cantonese fluently. Um, and so sometimes I'm you know, trying to grasp for words or concepts that are just not being translated very well. And um, in this conversation, I actually used the Microsoft Translator app, um, which allows for me to translate into Cantonese. Google Translate does not, it's only in Mandarin. And so I framed the conversation being like, hey mom, like have you heard about the news? This I could speak by myself. And then, you know, she responded and then I, I typed in, have the cops ever been helpful to you? I put it on speakerphone, let it play for her. And she responded like, no, um, not really. Um, they don't speak 
Chinese and also what would they do for me? And that was really illuminating because my parents, or in this case, my mom, like don't feel comfortable calling the cops because of this language barrier. And then that led into this other conversation about um, how the restaurant hasn't broken into before, it hasn't vandalized, and they've had to call the cops for insurance purposes, right, to file a police report. And that process is really difficult for them. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of disbelief on the cops end. Insurance fraud is always like a question then you have like biases and all these things. And um, my mom and I are still in conversation about this, but I was trying to ask her like, what if you could call someone and they picked up on the other line, actually spoke Chinese, actually spoke your language and actually wanted to help you. And so now we're trying to like figure out like what are some of the things that they can do besides calling the cops should another incident happen? or um, in an instance where they need help in that moment. You know, this was not an easy conversation. Like, I definitely cannot just like chat away with my mom about anything. Um, and so that kind of commitment is also something I see as like being a co-conspirator, right? Like I'm pushing myself into discomfort with my family, potentially like alienating them um, and like making my mom mad at me um, because I have this like value and principle that I like want to see come to fruition. Thank you so much for sharing that, Laura. That's so beautiful that you went through that process with your, your family, your mom in particular. I appreciate that example a lot because one thing that just really sticks out to me is that you know that there's a risk that you're taking. And that to me is also like at the heart of being a co-conspirator or an accomplice is to be ready to take a risk um, for things that you know are, are principally uh, like true, right? So if we're actually going to continuously talk about uh, another world where we're dismantling capitalism and dismantling other systems of oppression, we have to be ready to sacrifice a lot. And so that means that you're not only willing to take a risk, but you're also ready to sacrifice. Uh, be it your comfort, like Laura is talking about, or take risks and sacrifice, you know, lifestyle or whatever might come into question if you're really about it. I think about that pretty much on a daily basis that I better be ready. And on an everyday basis, I also think people, especially right now, as they start to think of themselves as accomplices or co-conspirators, one thing that I think is important is that everyone has a role and when, again, when we're thinking about um, issues around social justice or the movement for Black lives and how we're supposed to be co-conspirators, I think everybody has a role, but everybody also has a lane. And those should never be mistaken. And you should always go in with humility if you are new to movement spaces or concepts. And there is so much to know that you don't even know. Like, <laughs> I don't even know. I feel like there is um, a never-ending, you know, supply of wisdom that we are lucky to continuously get from elders and from people who have been struggling in this country for much longer than I have. And so for me, it's really important to be humble, to stay in your lane, to know your role, and to always, always, always uh, be prepared to take a risk and to, to make sacrifices. 
And like Laura said, like it's an everyday thing. It's not like some days you decide to do it. It's about pushing ourselves again in an everyday way and just keeping ourselves correct in each of those aspects. I'm just so glad you mentioned all of that. And Laura, just going off of what you said and having that difficult conversation, I personally have also had that conversation with my mom specifically as well. Um, you know, I am a black woman, um, but you know, even within the black community, there's that where I'm an African. Um, so it's like having that conversation with my mom when I was out there protesting and out there, you know, after George Floyd's murder, I, like every day we were out, my sisters and I, and just having that difficult conversation with my mom uh, of like, you know, her saying, you know, why, you know, why? And again, I understand as a mother, you know, there's different layers too, but having that difficult conversation, even when you know it might end up in like a fight or again, distancing yourself from your family or, you know, it, it is important. And um, sometimes you just have to know what's right and then draw the line and just be okay, whatever the outcome might be. And I think this, this has caused a lot of people to have that difficult conversation. And just going off to the next question, um, we're living in a time where a lot of folks can Google for funds to donate towards or resources for unlearning. Um, but it's also a digital performative time. Um, how do you as organizers um, navigate when folks reach out to you about joining a movement? Um, does it cross your mind um, or is something better than nothing in your eyes? This might be a hot take that nobody agrees with, but movements need money. I don't think that it's insignificant to donate to or people who are organizing. I think that um, to be responsible with who you decide to contribute to is also very important. So you can't just be haphazard about how you decide to contribute and what you decide to contribute and who you decide to contribute to. You have to be thorough about those things. So I'm not gonna say donate your time or donate your money and just do it anywhere. I don't think you should be indiscriminate about that. I think you should be deliberate about everything, including especially if, you know, in like corporate capitalism where your money goes. So I, I think, you know, it, it's really important to also, like one thing that I, I, I actually learned by working with Laura and Bianca by hosting these trainings that we did is that when, for example, we were not taking funds for three sessions that we were hosting. And whenever we said that we were gonna donate, like encourage people to donate to an organization, a community-based organization instead of ourselves. So the process was, and I think it's important to break down the process because a lot of people might not even think to do this, but one, it was to uh, be really specific about the organizations that we were going to select as uh, you know, people that we were, sorry, the organizations that we were gonna encourage people to donate to after each session. And then to get consent from the organization itself, is this something that you all feel comfortable with us asking participants to direct funds to? And is that something actually that would be supportive? To me, that's like a consensual relationship that people don't really necessarily consider. But I learned that through Laura and Bianca. And I really appreciated that lesson because to me, it's like the idea of parachuting in has always been wrong, right? So if you think that you should parachute into any movement, any organization, anybody, 
it's time or labor in a way that you think that you are necessary, you're wrong. So I think, you know, it's important right now to not be performative and to give where uh, it's asked and to be, again, like very thorough and investigative about where you're giving um, and what it contributes to, but to be uh, generous with your time, your money, your resources, there's ways to contribute to a movement that doesn't have to do with money either. And I think that's something that folks should definitely start to think through as well. I don't think that's a hot take. I mean, it's hot. It's hot. It's good. Um, I totally agree. I don't think people should do labor for free, especially when these movements are being led by impacted people, right? Um, it's just, it's not right. I think we should always make space to invite people to join the movement. And as a digital organizer and coming from an organization of digital organizers, it's our responsibility to help folks navigate new ideas, new opportunities to take action. And also that can, that it can include like organizations that folks should join or support. Um, we know that the internet is a place um, and the internet can be local and it can also be expansive, right? And so that's something to think about. And there are definitely times where this feels performative. Um, I think we're also living in a time where we're not able to see people face to face. We're not able to have those in-person interactions. And so we have to think about our, um, our stance and approach to the work. And I think instead of like shutting down people or shaming them about performative allyship, we can just direct new enthusiasm, enthusiasm and energy into political education, into meaningful work, into creating real change. Um, and for some folks, like, they don't know what they're doing is performative, right? Like, they're very new to this whole process. And what's more important is that they're, like, willing to stick with it and learn um, and, and be open-minded about things. And one of the um, philosophies that we have at HMR, which I was really appreciative to learn about, was shining a light on the work that's being done at the grassroots, you know? Um, always being aware of like what your privilege and position is and like how you can use it to serve other folks who don't have as much. And that's like one thing that I've really tried to take with me every day at, at work, which is how can I like connect with folks in different places across the country who are doing work um, at the local level that may not be seen as an, at the national level on, on a digital scale. So I think about that a lot. I think like the overall theme of this podcast from what I'm hearing from both myself and from Kifa is that um, it's the political education that's really important and this like commitment to to learning and unlearning. Racial justice and the work that we're doing is a long-term struggle um, and it's changing like every day it's changing right like we're becoming like more nuanced all the time um, and so we we have to be like flexible and fluid too. I just want to say you you are just both very amazing. I'm just so glad you both came on. And I know we're um, a little past time. I just have one last question for you guys. I want to give you the platform. If you have any messages for our listeners um, that you want to amplify, anything that you want to signal boost, um, I just want to give you um, the chance to do that. Um, sign up for our Radical Summer School with me, Kifan Bianca. Session start August 11th. I don't know when this podcast is coming out. Um, and um, I'll plug two more things. 
Um, one of them is a, um, an account called Welcome to Chinatown, and it's based in New York City Chinatown. And um, with COVID happening and also just like how precarious Chinatowns are and, um, and ethnic enclaves are in general in this country, like a lot of businesses are going out a business like a lot of them are losing their leases they can't afford to make rent we know how expensive real estate is and we're not canceling rent or mortgages anytime soon so um, I would really highly encourage folks to donate um, to small businesses um, in Chinatown or like locally and um, the last thing I'll plug is there is an amazing organization called Freedom Inc um, they're based in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, they are Black and Hmong, Southeast Asian-led, and they do incredible work. They're guests this week as well. How exciting. Um, and uh, we've been in conversation with them about launching a campaign um, later this year. So um, I think it's really important to name that because we're not just like building these shallow relationships, right? Like we're trying to continue the work in a lot of different areas. So yeah, I wanted to name that. I know that this, at the time that this comes out, it might not be as timely, but today, after years of fighting and years that will continue to fight, uh, we had a victory in the House of Representatives where Congress voted to, you know, advance the No Ban Act. Now it goes to the Senate. The reason why I want to signal boost that, though, is because, um, during, you know, uh, the last general elections, we saw very clear messaging towards enacting such a policy, which was one of the first policies that was enacted by this administration. So not only was there a Muslim ban that was expanded and, you know, very clearly is now a Muslim and African ban, it also uh, took us a very long time. And I just wanna just uplift that organizing takes a lot of work and a lot of time and you won't see results. And the, the result that we even had today, uh, you won't receive results immediately, but the results that we had today was that it passed in the House of Representatives. Now it will go to the Senate where it might possibly die at the footsteps of Mitch McConnell. And you know what? That's terrible. But that means that we have a lot of work to continue doing because um, our families are being continuously affected. Our communities are being continuously affected. There are things happening in the streets. There's things happening, happening you know, uh, at the policy level, at the border. There's constantly so much work that's happening. And I just want to uplift that it takes a lot of time. And so if you are new, welcome. And I hope you are ready for a long commitment for your entire life to something that you should be committed to because everyone has a stake in enacting justice uh, for our communities, but also everybody has a stake in this country specifically, it's injustices if you live in the US, um, because we contribute to it constantly and we benefit from it constantly. So we need to unravel ourselves. With that, thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond Allyship. After listening to our conversation with Laura and Kifa, what are the ways in which you're engaging with your community and across communities to stand in solidarity with our Black community? How are you educating yourself or taking concrete actions? We want to know. Send us your thoughts. 
at podcast at greencardvoices.org.